you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Feeling the heat? Well, we are officially just a week into summer, but drought conditions in places across the state could be setting us up for a long, hot summer of wildfires. The wildfires are on top of the threat of the usual structure fires. Overnight here on Oahu, two people died in a house fire in Paoa. This morning, we hear from Elizabeth Pickett, who is with the Hawaii's Wildlife Management Organization, about a fire prevention campaign that launched this month. Wildfires across Hawaii are becoming more frequent. They are bigger and can be more devastating. The outlook this year is really that we're, in, we're already experiencing fires. We're seeing that things are drying out. Several parts of the state have had less rainfall and or are in drought already, but the projections are for that to continue and increase and have more drought all the way into the next several months. And the reason for this increase in fire occurrence across our state is because fire happens where climate, human behavior, and vegetation all come together. So in in Hawaii, we have more expanded fire-prone grasslands due to declining agriculture and invasive species. We have increased drought episodes, and we have lots of human-caused fires. Over 99% of our fires are caused by humans, and 75% of those are on accident. And so we really need to raise our decision-making and awareness up to the level of our fire risk because people haven't quite caught up in their decision-making to our actual risk on the ground. And so we're trying to raise awareness so that people can be more careful and fire-aware and wildfire-prepared. So we have lots of land management partners, ranchers, farmers, watershed partnerships, forestry and wildlife. Everybody's working really hard to manage their, what we call their fuel load, which is their you know, dry grasses and shrubs that need to be cleared in order so that if fire does break out, it doesn't, it's not able to spread very far. So we have lots of work on the ground to do that. And then the importance of that is because we are facing drought conditions, and so all of that vegetation is really dry. Even parts of the state that typically you don't think of fire because it's typically wet, even those dry out, and fire can happen anywhere if the conditions are right. So we're really trying to raise awareness everywhere. But the biggest piece of the campaign and the biggest piece that we want people to know about is that fire can only travel where there is fuel, and that includes dried leaf debris in your rain gutters, your yards around your house, most wildfires don't impact communities just from the outside. They send off lots of embers, and those can land in your leaf piles and land all around your house, in your yard, in your community. And so it's kind of up to everybody to make sure that all of our vegetation is taken care of and maintained and lean and clean and green is the saying. And then also we have to make sure we're not starting fires on accident. And we know what kind of accidents are causing these fires. It's campfires fireworks, equipment, and vehicles. And we have these kind of grasses that even just driving over an idling, even if it's not a catalytic converter or an actual spark, the radiant heat on these dry grasses can actually ignite a fire and you don't realize it. And it's long driven away before the fire starts. So those are the kinds of increased awareness pieces we need to have so people don't accidentally start fires. And for fires that do start, we don't want them to go very far. So that's why everybody also needs to take action when it comes to vegetation management. Well, you know, we just all need to be more aware of the risk factors in and around our area and then just to be mindful, you know, if you are out camping somewhere. But like you mentioned, you've got debris around your house, let's say an old Christmas tree in your yard. I mean, that those are highly flammable. And if you get embers floating in from another area, that could quickly ignite. Yeah, and it it all comes down to good housekeeping. So we recommend that people clear up their dead and dry vegetation, leaf debris, leaf piles. And you have to think anywhere the wind is bringing leaves and piling them up around your house and yard, that's exactly where the wind is going to bring one of those flaming hot embers. And it's going to land right in that dry pile. So it's really just good housekeeping, sweep and clean out under your lanai. And there's a lot of things you can do around your home to harden it which is where you put up, you know, non-combustible materials or screen to keep the embers out from going under your house and into your eaves and your vents and things like that. We have lots of those specific tips available in our preparedness materials on our website, which is hawaiiwildfire.org. And we recommend people just take a look at that because a lot of these fire preparedness activities are fast or cheap or easy. Of course, there are some that are more expensive, but these are all things you can do when you go out to do your yard work over the weekend. And, you know, I think, you know, just recalling the brush fires that I've covered over the years, I mean, I've seen those fires 
jump the road quickly, you know, and, and the wind shifts and then you're in trouble. Yeah, the evacuation piece is a big is a big part of what we recommend people get prepared for. So there's a role for everyone to play when it comes to wildfire. There's a role for businesses and hotels and the visitor industry to play to make sure that there are communications and awareness among the folks who are coming to visit. And the same goes true for our planners, planning departments, codes, zones, developers, engineers. Everybody needs to be in on it to make sure that we have proper evacuation routes, you know, more than one ingress, egress, that we have alert systems and everything in place. And so this awareness campaign that we're doing for Wildfire and Drought Lookout is targeted toward residents and folks who live and work in fire-prone areas. But the truth be told, all of Hawaii needs to step into their, their roles and their part of improving our fire outcomes. I mean, most people don't realize that Hawaii is among the most fire-prone states in the U.S. So even though our acre numbers are lower because other states are larger, the proportion or percentage of our state that burns every year is on average equal to or more than the proportion of other of the other western most fire prone states. And I don't think our awareness and our behavior and our infrastructure is actually designed at this point to match that threat that we face. Hawaii is a fire prone state. And what we're trying to do is make sure that people catch up with that fact and start to behave in those ways that considers that. And I know over the years we've watched those crazy fires in California where just wiped out whole towns, you know, paradise. Mm-hmm. And I actually talked to someone who was up in that area and has since relocated here. Yeah, we think about that in terms of we call that the interface. And so that's where we can get the most bang for our buck. So if communities who have that interface are making sure that they're not igniting fires and starting fires by under-aware activities and also making sure that all those communities who are near those areas that might be burning and headed toward their community, they're prepared, um, they have a family plan, they've practiced their evacuation plan, their homes and yards are all maintained so that when embers are being thrown and wind blown over their communities, those embers have nowhere to land where they could smolder and start a fire inside the community or inside their neighborhood. And then they are set up with all the alert systems and the you know, emergency management and civil defense systems so that they know when and where to evacuate to. We need all those parts in place. And I think we will get there as a state. But right now, I think people think fire is a fluke, just a random thing. But we know in the fire world, we know it's predictable. We can see the risk. We're watching drought happen. We know that our our vegetation is drying out, and we have lots of records showing us that we have tons of human-caused ignitions, and these are all the pieces we need to work on together as a state within our families and our communities to address. Okay. What, what was the maybe the scariest fire that you've been involved in? You know, I would say the, the Mana Road fire um, that happened last year on Hawaii Island, it just required so much coordination. Several communities had to evacuate. Um, and the, the landscape scale of the fire just impacted communities, natural resources, sensitive resources. It's hard to access. We don't have the infrastructure in place to have firefighter access or water. And that's, just, that's the case for you know, our entire state. We have lots of areas like that. And it just highlighted all of our issues of infrastructure, of community readiness, et cetera. Although I will say I felt very hopeful because our um, diverse County, state, and federal fire agencies have amazing relationships and coordination ability, but they're still limited by that infrastructural um, stuff that I mentioned. And the three communities that had to evacuate are three of 15 already nationally recognized firewise communities in the state. And that's a program that we run for communities who are ready to take their preparedness to next level. And um, they at least portions of their community were already involved and ready and they've already taken action on their own. So it was scary and it was also hopeful because we had a lot of parts and pieces in place to do the best we could with a hard situation. Okay. And we do not want to repeat this year. We definitely don't. (laughs) Yeah. We don't want to break any fire records. Well, we're really trying to get a few messages across. The first is, is that there's a role for everyone to play in fire preparedness. Firefighting is the very last line of defense. It means every other safeguard we had access to has been passed. So we all need to be a part of being fire safe in our activities and being aware of things that might spark and cause an ignition. We all need to be prepared around our homes and yards. 
mm-hmm. so that fires that do happen cannot spread. And then not just thinking that it's the fire department who's going to solve everything, but rather they're there when we haven't been able to stop it ahead of time. So I think that's the most important piece of this campaign, and there's lots of tips and recommendations. I mean, fire can only go where there's fuel. It's not like other natural hazards that you don't really have a say over. This one, we can have a lot of say over. We just need people to realize that they have a role to play. And so we have a lot of resources available for them to be able to take action. And those are all at hawaiiwildfire.org, and they can find them under the Wildfire and Drought Lookout page. That was Elizabeth Pickett of the Wildfire Management Organization. It kicks off its uh, fire prevention campaign this month. Look for links on our website later today. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. We have an interview with author Joseph Hahn about his new book, Nuclear Family, coming up later in the show. So today we're testing you on your knowledge of local publishing companies. We have several prominent publishers in our state, from independents like Best Press and Watermark to educational houses like Kamehameha Publishing and the University of Hawaii Press. The longest-running literary press in our islands was founded on Oahu in 1978 by two local guys, Daryl Lum and Eric Chalk. Its purpose, to foster the appreciation, understanding, and creation of literary, visual, or performing arts by, for, and about the people of Hawaii. It's a nonprofit tax-exempt organization funded by book sales and individual donors and supplemented in part by government and private foundation grants. So, for our uh, backyard quiz today, do you know the name of the oldest literary press in our state? Here's a hint. It's named after a popular fishing spot on Oahu. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neweet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeweetHawaii.com. decades, U.S. Army has held a lease on lands at Pakaloa on the Big Island. That lease ends in 2029, and leading up to that is an environmental study that is in its draft form, and the public is being asked to weigh in. The comment period, which opened in April, draws to a close tomorrow. We talked to Lieutenant Commander Kevin Cronin about what's on the table. A parcel of Pakaloa train area is leased from the state. And that lease expires in 2029. And it's 23,000 acres of training area. And so the Army started what's called the Army Training Land Retention Process. The key component of the process is an environmental impact statement. So we started the environmental impact statement process in the fall of 2020 with a public scoping comment period. And then the team has been preparing a draft environmental impact statement And now that draft environmental impact statement is released to the public for review and comment. And it's a 60-day public comment period. It started on April 8th. There were two in-person sessions where people could come in person to comment in Waimea and Hilo, respectively. 
and then that public comment period ends on June 7th. The comments are, are very important to the process because it just helps make the environmental impact statement that much better. So we encourage the public to uh, take a look at the environmental impact statement and provide comments. Well, I'm sure since you've already had these public meetings, you've probably got an earful from the community. These leases come up at kind of a sensitive time because of you know what we're experiencing here on Oahu with the Navy and its Red Hill facility. But how are you looking at you know that? project and, and how it's impacting, you know, what you are trying to do over there at Pahakaloa. The inputs from the community are really important to us, important in the environmental impact statement to the process like I just described, and then also outside of the process. It's really important for us here on Hawaii Island, here at Pahakaloa Training Area, to be good members of the community, to be part of the community, and develop strong relationships with the community. And we acknowledge there's a wide array of community positions on the lease land and on on the military here on Hawaii Island. And we strive to engage with all members of the community, hear their concerns, and develop relationships and engage in a dialogue with them. Like I said, very important for us to be good members of the community. We go about that in a variety of different ways. But at the end of the day, our mission here at Pawakaloa, which is a very important mission that I'm proud to be a part of, is to ensure that our nation's men and women, our volunteers in uniform, are as prepared as possible if they're called into harm's way. You know, so the military makes a case that, yes, it needs a place to train, but some might ask, do you need all 23,000 acres? Right. So the environmental impact statement is looking at four alternatives. These alternatives are full retention, modified retention, limited retention, or no retention. And so to your question, well, that's exactly what the environmental impact statement is looking at. And if people have comments on that, you know, I'd ask them to, to please provide those comments. For the, the mission of Pawakaloa Training Area as it stands right now, that parcel is, is very important to our mission here because of where it's located on Pawakaloa training area and also because of what's located on it. So where it's located on Pawakaloa training area, it's in the middle. It's essentially the connective tissue to the rest of Pawakaloa training area and the very important range complexes that we have here for our training. The cantonment area and the airfield are also within the state lease land. There's battle area complex where our soldiers and do realistic training that closely replicates the conditions of combat where they can maneuver on the ground and incorporate aircraft fire for that maneuver. There's a drone airstrip where we can incorporate drones into our training, which is very important to us with kind of the increasing use of drones in in warfare. And then there's many other aspects of, of the lease land. So I can just talk about, you know, everything that we use on the lease land. But then as far as kind of the environmental impact statement is assessing the different impacts of full retention, modified retention, limited retention, or no retention. And so I don't want to get ahead of that process. I know here on Oahu, where the military was using the Makua Valley for live firing and the concern for uh, fires, you know, was 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 very high, and and even when the military, I think, has done controlled burns, it, you know, sometimes things got out of hand and and spread uh, further. But I mean, so so talk about the, uh, maybe the exercises that you folks do and the concern that the community might have for uh, the risk of wildfires. We take the risk of wildfires extremely seriously here in Hawaii. On Hawaii Island, due to the wind and the vegetation, it's a risk throughout the island, and so. The team here is extremely proactive in our wildfire mitigation efforts. And so the training that occurs every hour, the team assesses the weather index to ensure that the weather is such that the training can continue to occur. And if the weather index shows that there's a higher risk, then they'll scale back the training or even stop the training to mitigate that fire risk. We also have a fire department on hand here that's on on standby and prepared to respond to a wildfire. We have 14 dip tanks filled with water located throughout the reservation for our military helicopters to respond with water bucket drops in the event of a wildfire. We have our bulldozer operators who are ready to cut fire breaks. And then we also constantly assess the ground and we create in advance 
fire breaks and fuel breaks throughout the installation. It's a constant effort to decrease our fire risk. And then the fire department continuing to develop expertise in their wildland firefighting skills. And we invite the community to participate in that training. So just last week, we had 50 first responders from throughout Hawaii Island, the Hawaii Fire Department, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, other volunteers come to PTA and we all trained together on wildland firefighting skills. And then we're really proud of where the first responders in the Seattle region in the event of an emergency, even if it's off of Pohokaloa training area, we regularly respond to incidents three times a week on average. And so last summer, when we saw that massive wildland fire, the Mana Road fire that started about seven miles away from PTA, the Army responded and supported the community in fighting that wildland fire. And through the team effort, the combined effort, it was destructive, but it could have been a lot worse if not for the Army's uh, efforts. We had five helicopters come over from Oahu to support with bucket drops, and we ended up doing nearly 200 bucket drops for about 170,000 total gallons of water to help arrest the spread of the fire. While the firefighters on the ground were doing their their brave work to stop the fire on the ground, and the bulldozer operators were uh, bulldozing fire breaks to get around the fire. So if one of the four options is not to renew the lease of any of that acreage, then that's one thing that goes away. The impacts, again, to that option are being assessed in the environmental impact statement. But the first response capability that we provide for the community would obviously be, it would need to be assessed and adjusted accordingly. And and as we uh, head into uh, more severe drought conditions, that's something to consider going forward. Right. And it's one other thing I'll add, Catherine. I just spent the morning at Camp Kilohana, which is a Girl Scout camp here on Hawaii Island, really special place where the Girl Scouts do events and campouts and jamborees. And the PTA team spent the morning up there supporting the Girl Scout leader with fire prevention proactive efforts. So we brought our lawn, we brought our mowers up there and we mowed the grass. The fire department team was up there doing their assessments and cutting trees and branches that needed to, to be cut. And we chipped wood, we, we helped fix fences. And that's just a great example, you know, to your point about the fire, overall firefighting efforts, but then a good example of how we partner with the community. I mean, we had 10 soldiers out there who were here training that got out there to help. It was just a really great morning, a really great community effort. Is there anything else that you want to underscore uh, in regard to the environment out there? I always like to emphasize the importance of the training mission. It's extremely important for our nation's armed forces to have training ranges and facilities that closely replicate the conditions of combat. So our nation's men and women who volunteer to serve are as prepared as possible when they are called into harm's way. And PTA is really the, the only place in Hawaii and you know, really in the Pacific Basin region where you can get that large-scale combined arms maneuver training where you incorporate the maneuver on the ground and the fires. And so the gold standard of, of training is to closely replicate those conditions of combat. And that's what we do here at PTA, proud, very proud of that mission. Sort of leading our nation's men and women in combat, that there's no other higher calling for me personally than to be charged with being responsible for their training so they're as prepared as possible. Given the, I guess, the increasing threats in the Pacific region, are we stepping up training where we've invited other countries to come train over there at Pohakaloa? We welcome allies and partners to come train here as well to get that training experience that Pohakaloa training area ranges provide and then and then do that in conjunction with the United States Armed Forces and it increases our interoperability, and that's how we would fight in a combat situation, and so we're preparing to do that. Who have we had recently? So uh, we've or, had, you know, traditional allies and partners mm-hmm. have trained at Pohokaloa trainers, so like Australia, who? New Zealand, Japan, Philippines, Thailand, those, those types of partners in the region. Okay, and that's been the last year? In the last couple of years. Okay, last couple of years, okay. Um, and then are you doing anything more with RIMPAC? PTA plays a role in RIMPAC. Mm-hmm. RIMPAC's coming up. This is a RIMPAC year coming up this summer. And so we'll have some U.S. land forces training here, and then also we'll welcome some allies and partners 
to participate in that training as well. Okay, so they will go over there uh, to the Big Island then. Okay, I wasn't I wasn't sure. I we usually just see the ships out, you know, off Oahu, and I wasn't sure. Um, the PTA yeah. will play a small small role in that. Okay, um, and then uh, to you know the increasing threats in the region. And our senior leaders and decision makers have classified China as the pacing challenge for the United States. It's important for our forces to continue to prepare and be as ready as possible. And you talk about deterrence. Deterrence is made up of two key aspects, capability and will. And a key component of capability is readiness. And that's what PTA provides, readiness to the Army, to the Joint Force, to the Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, who all come here to train. And then that contributes to the overall national security strategy and architecture in the region. That was Army Lieutenant Commander Kevin Cronin talking about the environmental issues being considered in the state land leases that are coming up in 2029. Cronin says the Army does have a division that deals with protecting native species and cultural sites. It says it has erected some 40 miles of fencing to protect areas from uh, the damage that hoofed animals and feral cats pose to sensitive areas. To submit testimony on the environmental assessment, I'll look for links on our website later today. Again, the deadline is tomorrow. Well, the deadline for filing papers to run for public office is tomorrow, and the election is our reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beat political reporter Kevin Dayton joins us. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. So we're talking about the Hawaiian vote. We are. It's, uh, it's turning into a very interesting year. Um, if you spent any time on Mauna Kea uh, in 2019, uh, we had to wonder whether those protests up there, which were very heated and became a real rallying point for the Hawaiian community, you had to wonder if that was going to play out in um, in additional turnout or additional participation in the Hawaiian community. Um, but if you're familiar with kind of the recent history of voting in Hawaii, Hawaiians do not always turn out in great numbers, not, not comparable to, for example, the uh, uh, Americans of Japanese ancestry, which have a long history of very good turnout. So there does seem to be a lot more political activism in the Hawaiian community right now, but that didn't seem to translate into too much action in 2020. For example, that uh, the new Aloha Aina Party didn't elect any candidates during the last election cycle. But then we have uh, Congressman Kai Kaheli jumping into the governor's race, and this would be the first opportunity in many years um, for a very serious candidate uh, for governor who is um, Hawaiian that, that seems to have at least a shot at that. Um, and he's he's challenging, of course, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. And um, Kaheli is surely the best-known Hawaiian to make a serious bid for the governor's job in many years. And he has uh, been pretty vocal early on about a lot of these uh, land and water issues that are important to this community. Absolutely. Um, you know, he was active. Uh, he was he was a participant in the protests on the Mauna Kea, for example. Um, uh, he then he just played a role in a number of water and land issues that are super important to Hawaiians. For example. Um, he uh, worked on the management, overhaul the management of Mauna Kea. Um, he has introduced legislation in the Congress to clean up and return Makua Valley. Uh, he has been very engaged in the, the closure or the efforts to close the fuel tanks at Red Hill. And also um, early on in his career, he was very active in the stream diversions in Maui, which were very controversial because uh, the taro farmers over there were arguing that that they needed access to more water, and it was being locked up by uh, other players. But because he jumped in late in the game, uh, you know, for this governor's race, I mean, a lot of the endorsements were already on the table. You betcha. Uh, the, the major unions, of course, HGEA and the Hawaii State Teachers Association have already endorsed Josh Green. Um, those, are, those are big players in any election, especially in any Democratic primary election where the union membership tends to be very active, more active than the general public, I would say. Another thing that's happened, of course, is that a lot of the major campaign donors, the people who routinely participate in, in campaigns um, and donate generously to the candidates, have already made commitments to Josh Green. That's all going to make things quite difficult for Kai in terms of raising money um, and in, in terms of getting traction in those certain communities. Uh, it doesn't mean he can't do it. It just means that it's more of a challenge. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about how late he entered the race. He actually entered, I think, a uh, 
May 6th or 7th, which is super late for a statewide campaign like that, um, it makes it hard. He doesn't have time enough to get himself better known to the voters. And, you know, you talk about the ethnic vote, right? I mean, you've got the uh, Japanese uh, voters who are very loyal. You can count on them to uh, to turn out. Hawaiians, like I said, you know, not so much. Uh, but will this be the year since, you know, lots of efforts are being put behind Hawaiian issues, everything from, you know, DHHL money to, um, gosh, just, you know, supporting uh, OHA, those kinds of things. Absolutely. If you if you were watching the legislature this year, um, the legislature presumably was reacting to something when they committed six hundred million dollars to Department of Hawaiian Homelands for new housing. Um, when they put up, you know, basically, if you put that together with with other money that they allocated, more than a billion dollars in money that went either to uh, development of homesteads or to payment of old claims that were pending because of delays in developing homesteads. That kind of activity, that doesn't happen all the time at the legislature. When you see that happen, you have the sense that the legislators who tend to have their their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the community, they're looking at Hawaiians and Hawaiian issues uh, much more carefully than maybe they they have in some years in the past, and are are responding to that, saying, hey, these are some things that we need to address. And there's also an issue of the changing sort of component of the, the voting makeup, especially among the Democratic Party. Um, uh, Omnitrack Group uh, recently published data that shows that the ethnic composition of the Democratic base has been shifting, which shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. But Americans of Japanese ancestry, who I mentioned, have been mainstays of the party. They declined from 43 percent of the Democrats who were registered and inclined to vote in 1994 down to 29 percent this year. Um, they're still considered an important core group because they're of their reliable turnout. But during the same period, the share of reliable Democratic voters who self-identify as Hawaiian increased from 13 percent to 16 percent. Now, it's not monumental, but that potentially could be significant. And we didn't mention this is a three-way race. You've got uh, Vicky Cayetano, who's the former first lady and um, uh, is married to Ben Cayetano, who is the uh, first uh, Filipino-American elected governor of any state in the nation. And, he, you know, he's a source of a lot of pride to the Filipino community. So there's a sense that he'll do quite well in that community. I'm sorry, she'll do quite well in that community. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it would be really interesting to see uh, what happens uh, this fall. But thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Take care. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Um, look for his story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR Local Reporting comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation's Change Framework, providing a common set of data to drive collaboration, action, and resolution of critical challenges across the islands. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org slash change. Join Hawaii Public Radio in supporting the arts in an out-of-this-world way. Make a monthly gift of $10 to HPR, and we'll thank you with a pair of tickets to Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's performance of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, in concert. Tickets are limited, so become an HPR member today. To learn more, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash starwars. Children under five could be the next group eligible for the COVID vaccine, but how are we doing on the five to 11 group? HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us to talk about that. Hi. Good morning. Yes. Uh, So a panel for the Food and Drug Administration will be discussing whether or not to give uh, COVID shots or authorize the vaccine for uh, kids underneath uh, under five years old. Last month, uh, CDC approved uh, booster shots for kids uh, 5 to 11. But the whole uh, purpose of my story for today was anecdotally I was hearing that, you know, it's starting to get a little bit harder to find um, places to give uh, booster vaccines. You know, um, for adults, it was pretty much everywhere that you turned, right? Your Longs had it, your Walgreens had it, uh, hospitals uh, had these uh, large venues such as the Blaisdell and also uh, Pier 2, uh, these mass vaccination sites. But uh, that has uh, steadily rolled back as we continue on uh, with uh, the pandemic transitioning from a pandemic into an endemic and tr- living with the virus. So uh, kind of wondering, you know, where are we with these shots, you know, especially with uh, kids uh, just now uh, or recently within the last few months being able to get these shots? 
what's happening on that front. So I spoke with uh, Dr. Monica Singer, who's a uh, a pediatrician at Kapi'olani Medical Center. She's also uh, working with the Department of Health's immunization branch. Uh, found out that you know only 38% of kids within this uh, 5 to 11 age group received their uh, first two doses. And last month uh, was they were available for boosters, but only about a percent of them it got those boosters. So that's a little bit more than 1,300 children. And uh, this is Dr. Monica Singer on the vaccination rates. Nationwide, for our 5 to 11-year-olds, our completion of the primary series, which is the first two doses, is pretty low. We're about 29%. It's a little bit higher in Hawaii. Overall, 38% of our 5 to 11-year-olds have completed the uh, first primary series of the two doses. Um, But I can't stress enough how important it is to get the booster dose. I would remind a lot of people that most of our vaccines and many of our routine childhood vaccines are a three-dose series. To have this booster is not unusual. And although there's like reports that say that, you know, COVID uh, is less severe in kids, doesn't mean that there aren't serious cases. She actually treats a lot of uh, children who get admitted to uh, Kapi'olani, and not only that, but it's the after effects, you know, the shortness of breath that of long COVID, the foggy memory, the focus that's uh, really been off that's also associated with long COVID. So she can't stress enough that, you know, these are really important. And so uh, this is also, uh, she says that, you know, it's serious. It's it's good to get these boosters, even though you um, COVID may be less severe in the kids. This is a safe and effective vaccine, and we've given billions of doses out. And especially in this 5 to 11-year-old age group, that booster dose, there were no cases of myocarditis or pericarditis in the group that they had enrolled. And there were no significant side effects that were different other outside of what we saw with the primary series. There was a little bit um, higher incidence of lymphadenopathy, which is just some swelling of the lymph nodes. And so she kind of goes on to say that, you know, um, there is a transition that's happening on the federal and state levels uh, from these mass vaccination sites to getting them into uh, doctor's offices uh, that would just align with, you know, the flu shot or TB shot, those necessary requirements that the DOE has for kids going into school as well. So it might not be as convenient where you just go to Safeway or, you know, someplace like that, but um, people have to, parents have to make the effort to schedule an appointment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it's a a thing of give and take as well. Uh, She uh, is trying to get physicians signed on to carry these doses. And because the vaccines are still in that emergency use authorization stage uh, with the FDA, uh, there's a lot of paperwork involved. And there's also concerns uh, from doctors regarding, uh, you know, having doses that may uh, expire within their, uh, you know, office or even staff training. So she's saying that the Department of Health is working with these physicians, but she would like to see more people sign on uh, to this program so that the vaccines can be readily available in these offices. Also, uh, if you're still wondering, that HawaiiCovid19.com, still a great resource, and that's still up and running. Okay, great. Good information. Thanks so much, Casey. Thanks so much. We have been talking to HBR reporter Casey Harlow. To read more on this issue, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Today's Backyard Quiz, we asked if you knew the name of the oldest publishing press in our state. It's been around since 1978 with the purpose of publishing literature by, for, and about Hawaii's people. It currently publishes two volumes a year, a literary journal of poetry and fiction featuring work by both emerging and established writers, and a book by a single author or an an anthology focused on a special theme. 
In its 40-plus years, it's published a diverse catalog of poetry, screenplays, stage plays, and novels, including works from popular local authors, Lois Ann Yamanaka and Lee Cataluna. Some of its published works have recently uh, received recognition for literary excellence and have been adopted as texts or recommended reading in school classrooms. And not only is it the oldest literary press in our state, it's also one of the longest-running small presses in the country. If you're an avid reader, then you probably know we're talking about Bamboo Ridge Press, the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And our winner today, Christine Lamborn from Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health System, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. On the next Fresh Air, WNBA basketball star Coach Dawn Staley. She won Olympic gold medals as a player and coach. Also, the author of the new memoir, They Said They Wanted a Revolution, by the daughter of Iranian activists and revolutionaries. Her family fled to the U.S. after the execution of her father in 1982. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering classes including art, film, history, and gardening with start dates through July 13th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Writing down or sitting down to write his first novel, author Joseph Hahn also worked to untangle threads of his family history in Hawaii and Korea. That personal experience remains the core of his book titled Nuclear Family. But the story goes well beyond the bounds of autobiography. The novel tells the story of the Cho family who operate a Korean plate lunch restaurant in Hawaii. The central conflict kicks off after the family's eldest son, Jacob, is caught on television trying to cross the Korean demilitarized zone. But Han, who stopped by the studio to speak with the conversation, Savannah Harriman-Pote, says there's more going on with Jacob than meets the eye. He was, in fact, possessed by the ghost of the grandfather that he's never met, who requires a physical form in order to cross a pervasive and seemingly impenetrable spiritual border that coincides with the physical manifestation of the Korean DMZ. In writing a story about the Korean DMZ and the history of the Peninsula's division, I thought a lot about what Toni Morrison says about how we should embrace haunting and ghosts as not something that we need to run away from Um, but a way to understand how we can perceive another reality existing on the one that we know and to understand what needs our attention and what histories we need to acknowledge. And it was writing a ghost story with supernatural or surreal elements I thought was the best way to think about what is ultimately an imaginary border and construction and a pretty arbitrary marking on the map that is replicated and repeated across the global imaginary with the 38th parallel. So I thought telling a ghost story was the perfect medium for for me to think through the unseen forces that go beyond our understanding of why Korea is separated and divided and for us to reckon with um, the reconciliations that are not possible both in this life and in the next life. Mm. And that's where your story starts, Mm -hmm. a ghost on the border of DMZ. 
But you said that this novel was also part of figuring out your place in Hawaii as a writer and figuring out your family history or the history of the Korean diaspora in Hawaii. Can you tell me a little bit more about that process, about how you were working through these ideas while you were writing the book? Yeah. In writing fiction, I had to reckon with how my education was primarily in the English language. And it's this very education that removed me further and further from being able to grasp what happened that could lead to my family's immigration to Hawaii, Um, namely how the U.S. occupied Hawaii as a military site, a strategic location, on the way to its larger imperial effort to contain the quote-unquote threat of communism and how this led to their larger narrative of intervention and saving South Korea. So these are all histories that I did not know and secrets about what my family directly experienced during the war, what secrets were kept from me, and which I had to uncover in my own learning back through English, through Korean American literature, through the work of Korean scholars uh, talking about the war, to consider what I could do with my voice to speak back to these overlapping and entangled histories of war and its pervasiveness both in Korea and Hawaii. Um, For example, um, the U.S. military practiced bombing um, North Korean uh, transport carriers on the island of Ko'olave as a way to prepare for the war. And beyond the Korean War, they continued to bomb Koho'olave until they cracked its water table, until Native Hawaiian activists fought with their lives to reclaim those lands. And it's this history that makes me think about how even now there is this uh, resistance to war on the Korean Peninsula with um, South Korean villages protesting the arrival of THAAD, protesting the construction of a military base on Jeju Island, demanding that we strive for peace and that we center peace in our lives rather than centering violence and uh, preparing for war. So these are all things that I thought through and sat with as a writer as I set out to tell a story set in both Hawaii and Korea. In your work, you you don't shy away from comedy and you don't shy away from heartbreak <laughs> and you walk a very fine line between the two. And you cited Toni Morrison, for instance, as an influence in the idea of having to embrace that dichotomy in our work. Is there someone personally in your life who has that kind of biting, dark humor? (laughs) (laughs) I guess I would say my own grandfather. Um, He's kind of notorious for spinning tales. Um, (laughs) It's kind of the origin story of how he met my grandmother. He kind of talked himself up saying that he came from a wealthy family when it was his uncle that owned a shipping business, um, that he um, went to school in the U.S., um, but he didn't actually attend or see it through. So I guess I've inherited those qualities from my grandfather and being able to spin a fiction or a yarn. And he, yeah, he's... Um, an entirely serious but also incredibly funny person. Um, And uh, he and my grandmother raised me, so um, I guess I get my traits as a writer from from him. On the other hand, my grandmother is a very devout Christian and raised me in a very Christian context. And what I've learned from her is how 
how intensely someone can hold stories and narratives as sacred. And that was absolutely the same kind of approach that I had to have in writing these characters and propping them up to tell their stories that Korean families, too, are worthy of such kind of upholding and attention. That was author Joseph Hahn, whose debut novel, Nuclear Family, comes out tomorrow. He was speaking with the Conversation Savannah Harriman poet about how his family history informed his work and what we can learn from ghost stories. Hahn will be celebrating the launch of Nuclear Family at the shop, bookstore, in Kaimaki tomorrow evening. You can find more information on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That is it for us today. Tomorrow we hear from the State Elections Office. The deadline for interested candidates to file papers is 4.30 tomorrow. What's ahead in the months to come? Have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>